Support for Spy Hearts is brought to you by Manscaped. When it comes to below-the-waist grooming, nobody does it better. Manscaped's tech masterminds provide the most efficient tools an aspiring spy could hope for when it comes to prepping the family jewels. Now, Scott, what do you do to look after your double O's? Well, Cam, as you know, we work on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and that means that sometimes we need to improvise. I've had to rely on all kinds of unreliable methods, including beard trimmers and even razor blades. And let's just say a couple of times my 007 almost became a 006. Oof. Didn't Q once say, never let them see you bleed and always have a Manscaped strategy? (laughs) Well, Manscaped delivers on both uh, fronts, thanks to their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. This state-of-the-art electric hair trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade, a 90-minute battery, and the company's pioneered advanced skin-safe technology. Agents can trust their safety will be guaranteed when it comes to field work. Plus, this technology is waterproof and features an illuminating LED light for close-up precision. Even if you're swimming with sharks, you'll be able to keep the British end up. And this trimmer's 70,000 RPM motor will never compromise your stealth mode, thanks to Manscaped's quiet stroke technology. These guys understand the demands of the lifestyle, and are even throwing in a USB-powered charging stand, too. Spies do tend to live out of suitcase, after all. Cam, don't I know it. Experience it firsthand for yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SPYHARDS. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S at manscaped.com. We officially grant you all a license to trim. Your thunderballs will thank you. Welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the sexy provocateur. Oh boy, and sexy provocateur Cam, what are we looking at this week? We are looking at the 1931 Matahari film, Directed by George Fitzmaurice and starring one of the great icons of cinema, Greta Garbo. Now, before we get into the film itself, I think it's fair to acknowledge this is actually one of the first people that is, well, first films, sorry, that is based on a real person. Wait, are you, Scott, are you you saying Cloak and Dagger wasn't a true story? (laughs) You're breaking my heart. (laughs) (laughs) So apart from Jumping Jack Flash, that was what I was going to (laughs) say. Jack Flack has been, you know, following me around all these years. I just assumed that Cloak and Dagger was real. I wonder who you've been talking to. (sighs) (laughs) But Scott, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Matahari is a figure that in many ways has become something of a legend um, in culture. I I am curious, though, how familiar are you with Matahari? Not particularly much at all. I did a little bit of digging into her as sort of research for this film, but honestly, not a lot. Yeah, I mean, for me, weirdly enough, I think I've made this uh, reference before, but I learned a lot about Matahari from Archie comics. (laughs) Archie comics? Um, There was references to Matahari in Archie comics, and I really don't understand why. I mean, I read these comics when I was probably like nine, eight years old, but 
for some reason, it just kind of stuck with me, the name, because it's kind of a catchy name. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was always sort of an exotic quality applied to this character who I was not familiar with. <laughs> so was she a character in the story? Because I never read Archie comics. They haven't really come over this side of the pond. No, Matahari did not guest star in Archie comics, but um, it would be more like um, other characters would reference her or evoke her. Or I think there may have even been like a movie poster um, advertising a Matahari movie in an Archie comic, something along those lines. Okay. Okay. And I think also p- characters would occasionally refer to, say, I guess usually a female character as a Matahari type or Matahari or something like that. Okay. And what did you get from Archie comics? Very little, other than knowing the term Matahari and sort of making some sort of connection between, I guess, like a bit of a seductress and something of a spy or secret agent type, I guess. Okay. Um, I mean, all I got from my research was that she was uh, from Holland Mm -hmm. and she was an exotic dancer and a courtesan. And she was convicted of being a spy for Germany during World War One. Yeah, she was like... Okay, so it, she seemed to bounce back and forth because for much of her career, she was this very famous exotic dancer um, who gained a lot of attention and inspired a lot of imitators because she took, well, let's just call it what it is, uh, a lot of cultural appropriation. And she began to work a lot of like um, uh, Indian um, sort of elements into her act or also Indonesian um, themes mm-hmm. into her work, which at the time there was a real, I guess, appeal for sort of the quote-unquote exotic look. Um, and that really was influential in the world of, I guess, what would have been exotic dancing in those days. And so she was a very prominent figure there. Um, and at a certain point, you know, when World War One is going on, she gets brought in by France to perhaps spy on Germany. But then later on, it kind of gets twisted where she may be spying on France and she was ultimately executed as an agent uh, or, an, you know, a spy um, by France. Um, now, uh, there's a lot of questions about how accurate um, really what we know of the Matahari legend is true, because it just seems so much of it is, I mean, lost to the sands of time. Mm-hmm. But there definitely were espionage elements to her life. Um, it's just the real question of, you know, was she like a, you know, highly trained agent versus someone who kind of wound up in a bad situation. More like a uh, Roger Thornhill as opposed to a James Bond. Yeah, because she had a very like rough life where she was like married off very young to an abusive husband, lost her two children, and then she wound up in this world of exotic dancing. And so it's like, this is definitely a woman who's had a very difficult, you know, often abused life. Mm. Uh, life. And so you're not quite sure how much was manipulation getting her into the spy sort into the spy realm because you know like what is her lifestyle like she's a courtesan at this point what is going on when france is bringing her in to spy on germany and then later germany is potentially sending her to go spy on france like who knows right yeah i mean it's interesting because her life ended in 1917 which was during the great war uh, and it was obviously then turned to a film in 1931, like we said. So her story was being told 14 years later. But it's interesting to think of how much of the legend had already been scuffed by that point. How much of the legend do you think is just tied to the fact she was an exotic dancer? I think probably a lot of it is. And I think that's probably the closest bit to reality in this, the film that we're going to go on to speak to in a minute is is the exotic dancing. 
Yeah, that's kind of what I feel. Like, there's a sort of sexy element to that legend that's very easy to package and sell to, you know, audiences going forward, whether in these films, whether in books, whether in just passing the legend, you know, person to person. Well, even Archie Comics thought they could make a mention of her. Totally, yeah. And, I mean, there's been a lot of adaptations of Matahari stories. There's, you know, TV series and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So she's definitely a figure of pop culture. Uh, maybe not so much at the moment, though. Like, I do feel like that era has kind of quieted, but who knows? Maybe we'll get like a Matahari film in the next handful of years that will suddenly bring her back into the, uh, you know, the forefront of the uh, imagination of the world. Oh, they love remaking things. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I don't know that there's been a definitive Matahari movie. I guess we'll talk about that in a bit, but, you know, you could always crank out a new one. I think it probably would be Paramount if it was going to be a company. <laughs> probably. It seems like their kind of thing. But I think that leads us on to the film itself. So let's go where we always go to the synopsis. Matahari. Men worshipped her like a goddess, only to be betrayed by a kiss. A semi-fictionalized account of the life of Matahari, an exotic dancer who was accused of spying for Germany during World War I. Wow. <laughs> That's it. I love old movies. You could tell people that write letterbox synopses for like really old movies are just like one sentence. That'll do. <laughs> it's the same. This is basically on par with North by Northwest in terms of its directness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, in my cam letterbox grading uh, system, it's getting like a C plus because there's like no effort, but it does get the point across. <laughs> it doesn't really like tell you about the plot of the film it just sort of tells you who she is but maybe that's what you want yeah i think that probably works i mean i think a lot of the audience doesn't quite know who she is at this point so you know the younger audience members especially sure so, yeah makes sense okay now i don't think either of us has seen the film before reviewing it for the podcast is that right yeah no i i had heard of it i'd almost picked it up a couple times at the library and just hadn't for whatever reason um but uh yeah i'd never seen it okay so i think before we get into our thoughts on the film itself let's talk about the background and how it came to be what do you have for me yeah so um basically there was a book published in 1930 called matahari courtesan and spy which is a little bit of a sensationalistic title um the book was written by major thomas colson and this book caused a bit of a sensation. People were really talking about it. Um, I think it kind of repopularized the myth of Matahari in the 30s. And so Paramount Studios, um, you know, you referenced Paramount earlier. Paramount was like, hey, now, this could be something. And so they contacted the Hayes office. And for those that don't know, the Hayes office was kind of a censorship board, although at this point they didn't really have a censorship code in effect, um, not the strict way they would have later. In 1934, they would kick off the Hayes Code, which would rule until 1968 and really have an across-the-board censorship code. Mm -hmm. But up until this point, it was more like the Hayes office. You would kind of contact them and be like, how does this seem? And they would be like, yeah, this should be acceptable. Go ahead. That doesn't mean they wouldn't necessarily have issues, but it wasn't like a hard, strict code you had to follow the way that you have with ratings nowadays or from 34 to 68. So anyways, um, Paramount contacted the Hayes office about adapting the book, and um, the Hayes office forwarded the book to the German consul general in San Francisco named Otto von Hentig. 
And Otto did not like this book, Scott. He did not like it at all. Okay. (laughs) He called it one of the most contemptible pieces of war propaganda I have ever read. And he called every detail of it utterly wrong or misconceived and felt the project was dangerous. So you could say he wasn't a fan. (laughs) He did not get his name on the book jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Although, like, that's a pretty good quote. Just quote unquote, dangerous. Otto von Hentig. (laughs) That's all you need on the front. Matahari, dangerous. Yeah, that would have worked. So anyways, Paramount bailed. They were just like, nah, we're, we're not courting uh, controversy with this one. But MGM jumped in and um, they submitted a temp script a year later. And they have claimed that it was not based on any one book. Um, it was based on several books. Mm. And also they brought in for the writers, um, one of the writers, Leo Berinsky, who was a Russian, um, Russian-born writer. Um, he worked in German cinema early on, but he came over and he wrote a movie in 1927 called Matahari the Red Dancer which starred Magda Sonia so he had written a Matahari movie before and this movie is mostly forgotten um it's not one that is really out in circulation too much you can probably okay. find it if you dig for it but it's not one that people really talk about um but i could not find any evidence as to whether this guy wrote a brand new Matahari movie or whether they credited him for using his original screenplay. I looked everywhere. I couldn't find any confirmation. I think they actually did kind of go to this guy as the Matahari guy. That's the kind of vibe I get. Well, I suppose because it's semi-autobiographical, they they probably did have to lean on him a little bit because the story is more or less the same and it would probably end up the same way. I would think so, although there's so many diversions between reality and what this movie, this 1931 yeah. movie offers. True. That I'm like, I'm just, I would have to watch the Matahari, the Red Dancer film to really nail that down. I just wonder if it's like, kind of like if you're a writer in those days. I wonder if he just got pigeonholed. It's like, this guy knows this story. Bring him in. So he, he is forever known as the Matahari guy. I guess so. Yeah. Um, and there was also another writer named um, Benjamin Glazer who um, also worked on this film. I think he was the primary screenwriter. He's the one who at least walked away with the top billing with writing the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he had worked with the director, George Fitzmaurice, in the past on a mo- in a movie called uh, The Devil to Pay. But most notably, um, Benjamin Glazer wrote um, what became Greta Garbo's introductory film, Flesh and the Devil, back in 1926. Now, this was not her first film, but this was the first film to say, introducing Greta Garbo. And so these two writers um, put this project together for Greta Garbo and under the direction of George uh, Fitzmaurice. And we should just say George Fitzmaurice was a veteran director at this point. He'd been directing since 1914 with a lot of the big stars of that era, like Norma Shearer and Loretta Young. He'd also directed the 1932 Greta Garbo film, As You Desire Me. So he had familiarity with Garbo. I mean, this movie was 100% a Greta Garbo star project from conception, really. I mean, the film is titled about the character and she's playing that main character. So you obviously needed her as the focus of the film. But just from watching it, you could tell it is literally a vehicle for her. Oh, yeah, totally. And I mean, there was some issues with this film and that um, some of the dance sequences and bedroom situations had to be edited down. Um, We'll talk about those maybe a little bit later in the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the years after this movie came out, um, it did become a little bit dangerous, Scott. (laughs) It's that word again. 
<laughs> Once the Hayes Code came into effect in 34, they were looking to re-release this movie. And the Hayes people were like, no way in hell. <laughs> this movie is not appropriate whatsoever. Wait, so they released it and then they went back on what they said? No, no, but the Hayes Code didn't exist when this movie was released in 31. When the Hayes Code comes out in 34, the rules are a lot stricter as to what you can get away with in movies. Okay. And they were just like, this does not fly anymore, people. It was a much more conservative era once the Hayes Code kicked in. So what did we watch? We watched... What do you mean, what did we watch? What, what film is this, Cam? Where, where oh, am I? Mean, Who are you? Do you mean what? <laughs> you mean which version did we watch? Yeah, sorry, I should have been more specific. Yeah, okay, so we watched the original version, but it, for when they did get a certificate to show this movie later in the 30s, near the end of the 30s, really, mm-hmm. um, they edited out quite a bit of the content. Oh, really? Um, a, a number of the sexual scenes were edited down. Uh, yeah, there was there was definitely cuts going on for sure. I'm trying to think what would what would not pass muster now? Like I don't, it doesn't really, it doesn't seem that sexualized to me. Oh, I can tell you the scene where the two of them are like kissing on that whatever that is bed sort of thing. Uh, that wouldn't have been appropriate in the Hayes era. Sorry, that bed sort of thing. What do you call it? Well, was it a bed underneath the candle? Yeah. Well, because here's the thing, Scott. One of the censorship notes was the one thing they had to really cut out of this movie. One of the major things was that from that scene, he picks her up and carries her into the bedroom and slams the door. So that's why I'm like, is that a bed or is that some sort of futon or what is that? Oh, I see. Like a chaise lounge or something like that. Yeah. That's where I got a little confused. Okay. See, I don't see that suggestive at all, but uh, maybe I'm just uh, dulled. (laughs) Oh, Scott. In 1931? Oh, that is quite... I mean, think about how many movies from that from 1934 onwards, it's the couples have separate beds. I mean, I have to be completely honest with you, Cam. I, I was going to get into it in a bit, but this is probably the oldest film I've ever watched. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. No, no, that's not true. You've seen Metropolis. Oh, yeah, that's very true. Uh, when was that out? Uh, that's the 20s, I think. Okay, I've seen Metropolis. That was a hell of a thing to watch. But this was easier. But yeah, I, I don't know. That, it, okay. It just didn't feel that sexy to me. That's strange. <laughs> oh, Scott, I was fanning myself throughout this movie. <laughs> I, I was like, throw her on that bed sort of thing. <laughs> no, I would think in 1931, this movie would have been quite, uh, you know, people would have found it quite steamy. W- were you fanning yourself throughout? Oh, I was. You got to think about it. This is in, you know, uh, in this movie, it's an unmarried woman having affairs with multiple men throughout the film. Oh, this would have been, uh, this would have been a little scandalous back in the 30s. Okay, I, I trust you on this one, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the question is, how did this movie do? Well, I'll have you know, this was Greta Garbo's most successful film and MGM's biggest hit of 1931. Now, what did 1931 look like? That's very difficult to say because <laughs> the, <laughs> the actual numbers for 1931 are a little tough to pin down. You know, if the 60s or 50s are tough, 1931 is... uh, (laughs) You look up, like, top 10s of 1931, and you'll get a different list depending on what site you go to. So I'll tell you the best of what I can figure. So the actual numbers for Matahari, I was able to track down, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Uh, This movie made about 930,000 in the US, 1.3 million international for a total of 2.2 million, um, which equals about 40 million nowadays. which wasn't like the home run I really expected, to be honest with you. <laughs> no, so it, even with inflation after, what, 90 years, it's only 40 million. Yeah. That's bizarre. According to every inflation calculator I could find, yeah. Okay. 
It didn't do very well, yeah. then. You're right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. In those days, 40 million, probably that probably was a solid hit. I mean, the, the days of, like, these movies grossing mega bucks like nowadays are, you know, that doesn't really exist. And so, like, 1931, we're still early in the sound era, even. So, uh, I feel like the dawn of, like, the big movies are still to come. So, you know, like, Gone with the Wind doesn't even show up till like, 39 and that's this phenomenon, Snow White in 37. So I feel like this is still the earlier days. But I will mention as well, this movie cost uh, $558,000. So you know what? $558,000, $2.2 million gross. That's still a decent return on your investment. Well, yeah, it's uh, fourfold, basically. That's not too bad. Yeah. So, um, but when you look at that year, I will say the the... You know, the ones that run across the board that seem to have been the biggest hits of the year. I'm pretty sure number one was Frankenstein. Um, the, you know, um, James Whale, Boris Karloff film. Um, very iconic classic. And that one, you know, I'm sure when you lump in the lifetime gross of Frankenstein, it's the, you know, <laughs> it's racing way up ahead of everything mm. else. Because that movie has had a long, long life. Um, also on the list was City Lights, the Charlie Chaplin film, which was one of his big grocers of the era. Um, and so like that is an enduring classic as well. I can totally buy that that was a big hit. Um, and then one of the other ones that popped up a lot that I've never seen, but sounds incredibly racist, um, is a movie called Trader Horn starring Harry Carey. And it was an adventure shot in Africa. Mm. Um, and, uh, if you read about it, um, I think there's a reason we talk about Frankenstein. We talk about city lights. We don't talk about Trader Horn. <laughs> Say no more. I don't even want to look it up. Yeah. And so, um, uh, one other movie on this list I'll mention who seemed to have performed a little bit better than Matahari is another espionage film called Dishonored with Marlene Dietrich that uh, we'll tackle on this podcast sometime further down the road. Looks like I'm going back to 1931 at some point. <laughs> We're going to party it up in 1931 a couple times, yeah. Oh, behave. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else on the film itself, Cam? No, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Um, but yeah, Matahari, solid hit at the time. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's had a long life, though. And I think that's something we can talk about uh, going forward. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that just brings us on to the to the film itself. I, I had no idea about it until I think this is one of your picks for a film. Yeah, I was always really intrigued to watch it because I'd never seen it. Okay. Uh, so I, again, I had no idea going into it. I and as I said before, I don't tend to watch many old films. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything, any prior to sort of nineteen sixty, I would generally describe as an old film. Mm-hmm. Although some people might write in for saying that. Sorry, but um, I think I, I quite enjoyed it as a film. I, I, I have nothing against it. I think Greta Garbo was great. Yeah, it's very much like the iconic sort of exotic movie star appearance and. I referenced Dishonored, this Marlena Dietrich film mm-hmm. um, a couple minutes ago. And I mean, Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo have this sort of exotic quality that they're bringing to Hollywood in this era. And you could tell that the movies were very much looking to exploit that. And it was very popular with audiences. I was I was just quite taken aback by how much it actually had on screen in terms of emotions. When I think back to films of the 30s and, and, and you know, further back, I, I think of barely having any sound and, I don't know, just the acting not being there as it is nowadays. But I think Greta is great in this film and there's a lot of sad moments, there's happy moments. It's, there's a lot there to take apart. Yeah, I mean, the thing was, a lot of the movies of that era, 
we would have these things called melodramas, which is something that's been kind of fallen out of favor. But a lot of these dramas would have very strong romantic elements, for example, or it could be tear jerking stuff. But um, it was very much playing the emotions. I mean, I guess you could say to the back of the room. I mean, it's very much this sort of opera, uh, operatic, um, you know, emotions. Mm-hmm. And we get that here where you have this real star-crossed love affair with Matahari and this pilot. And it's this tragic doomed romance. It's played big. And audiences loved melodramas for many, many, many decades. And it's something that nowadays has really fallen out of favor where people really want emotional realism in their movies. Yeah, I, mean, I don't imagine this this version of the Matter Harry story would carry any weight now because we would all know it's completely falsified. Yeah, it pretty much is. Um, and I'll say, like, I enjoyed watching this movie too. Um, I, I wasn't quite sure how creaky it would be. You know, when you're looking at movies of the 30s, you'll find some that have aged incredibly well, like Frankenstein holds up really well. Um, Fritz Lang's M holds up incredibly well. Um, there's some Hitchcock stuff we're going to tackle later down the road that's really strong as well from the 30s. But sometimes you'll find ones where, you know, the sets look a little creaky and the performances are kind of stiff. And I didn't find that the, to be the case here at all. I actually, you know, I downloaded this movie from um, Apple Movies mm-hmm. and I was also not sure what quality of print I would be getting if it was one where the audio is a little muted or something like that. And I was really taken aback at how beautiful it looked and also just how sharp the dialogue was. And it really pulled me in. Like this was a movie that a lot of it has a certain amount of artifice and an artifice that's very much engineered by what Hollywood was doing in the 30s. But nonetheless, an artifice that I enjoyed, even if it didn't necessarily convince me I was watching anything approaching a realistic biography of Matahari. No, and you sort of mentioned the word melodrama earlier. There was a lot of pontificating to the screen almost from time to time, like monologues and things like that. But I guess that was of the films of the era, I should say. Yeah, because, I mean, the first real sound film is in 1928. Um, It's The Jazz Singer, which is also a very racist movie. Um, One that, uh, yeah, is very problematic as your first sound movie. But we're only a couple years into the sound era. And so you do have a lot of characters feeling like they have to explain things because uh, they don't really know what to do with sound yet. Like 31, they're pretty confident, you know, Frankenstein is a very strong use of sound in film, but um, you can definitely see that the seams are still there a bit. It's interesting because we've been putting on plays and musicals a lot longer than we've been putting sound into moving pictures. So you would have thought they would have been able to portray their emotions are a lot simpler because they're actually being able to communicate with the audience as opposed to using their physicality. Yeah, it's true. Um, But it was also like a lot of the actors who were trained in silent film were taught to be very big with their physical motions to communicate to an audience. And they had to learn how to pull back on that because suddenly when you have dialogue, you've got, you can't have these like really exaggerated physical motions tying to the dialogue. So it was like actors had to almost learn how to act for the screen all over again. And a lot of actors didn't make the transition. I'm guessing uh, Bill Shatner did not get that memo. (laughs) He's still working in silent films, he thinks. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't they understand what I'm saying? He's like dressing up as like the Charlie Chaplin tramp character. (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna throw her on that bed kind of thing (laughs) the classic shatner i would love to see the matahari film starring william shatner (laughs) uh i would not 
that that sounds awful. <laughs> God, is it called Shatter Hurry? <laughs> yes, I'm here all week. Yes, I I will fund it myself. We'll start a Patreon. <laughs> Everyone, get on board. Shatahari is coming to you on uh, Tubi. Tubi. It's coming to Tubi. Everyone. Yeah, there we go. It's free for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> or no, uh, what was the um, Google Screen or whatever it was? Oh God, no, wasn't it um, Yahoo Screen? Yeah, that's it. Yahoo Screen. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Community and Shatahari. That's right. That's a that's a match made in heaven right there. That's right. Oh, but I feel we're getting off topic a little bit. Of course, yes. <laughs> Serious topic here. Now, okay, let's let's talk about because we spoke about Matahari as a person and now we've got Matahari as a character. Mm-hmm. Even in the bio it says it's a semi-fictionalized account. So, you know, they they're leaning into the fact that it is hyped for the screen and they have changed it. They're not saying this is a completely true story. But I think what they do with the story and making it more of a you know, Hollywood glitzy film. I think it's a good translation. Yeah, I mean, I think it nails down the legend of Matahari very well in terms of what we think of, but also it also humanizes her in some ways because you have this romance with this, you know, pilot played by uh, Raymond Navarro, mm-hmm. um, who played a, a Lieutenant Alexis Rosanoff um, in the film. Um, you have the sense that this character has real tension of you know, her dedication to spycraft and falling in love. And the movie, you know, shows kind of the ramifications of that through another character that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but it doesn't just feel like a glossy kind of like, here's Matahari. It feels like you actually get into the tension that's going on within that character. And I think a lot of that is due to Greta Garbo, who communicates a lot with a little. Yeah, she does a lot with what's, what, you know, what could be quite a generic character i feel like and also i admired the fact that the film didn't portray her as ever coming across as weak or something like you could totally see a movie of this era having her just kind of crumble for love whereas there is a real sense of strength to that character and that she's still a very capable agent who is willing to make tough calls and she's making those calls most of the way through the film and she's fighting the uh, the love which is ultimately causes her demise in this story um, mm-hmm. she's fighting that whole problem for quite a while trying to resist and, and you know lean into her training which I assume is you know, not to fall in love because that's what her agent uh, her handler tells her earlier on in the film right yeah because her whole mission here is to you know steal these communication documents that um, Rosanoff is carrying and so she is, I mean he is the mission the fact that he she has to double cross him potentially get him killed mm-hmm. and um you know, alt for the service to Germany. I thought that was actually a very compelling, you know, way to simplify perhaps what the Matahari story is for, you know, a general audience who at this point is just showing up for entertainment. I, You just pointed something out to me. I, I noted it down when I was watching it earlier. It's very, I don't want to say brave because maybe Hollywood was doing that at this time. But you, if you think about the political alignment of this film, now Hollywood is an American production, Mm-hmm. They're making this film not in wartime, so it's between the two world wars, and they're shooting it in California, <laughs> right? Exactly. And but you just think about so the good guy of the film, 
in air brackets, the good guy or girl is a German. Yeah, um, it's very true. And, you know, a lot of it is sympathetic with a woman who's working for Germany. I guess you can argue, though, if you if you want, you could say also, though, that the you know, her handler in this um, who is German is played as more of the villain than she is. She's more sympathetic because she's, you know, she's obviously Dutch and she's been brought in to spy for the Germans. I don't mm-hmm. know. Is this movie sympathetic to the Germans? I don't know because the handler's, you know, not the most pleasant and his hired goons are pretty unpleasant. And we see in many cases them executing other agents. Yeah, but I don't think the them being German or the the Russians or the French or anyone, I don't think the geopolitical status really plays a part of the film itself, which I think is a brave move for a film of 1931. It feels like it's trying to look more at what is the life of a spy in World War I, um, where it is a very grim reality because, you know, even the German handler is saying, hey, we're all going to potentially die. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this could all, we, none of us are, you know, um, invincible in this life. Um, but also, you know, obviously it's France that takes down um, our, the most sympathetic character in the movie. And, um, you know, Dubois, who's this sort of, um, you know, investigator who's looking to, you know, he's basically on her tail throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, You know, he's portrayed opening the movie basically saying, like, she's France's greatest enemy, which I don't think anyone actually said at the time. (laughs) But nonetheless, um, you know, he's the one who's hunting her down throughout the movie. He is kind of like the Tommy Lee Jones and the fugitive type character. Mm. Um, And I don't think he's that sympathetic. I don't think the audience is ever on his side. Dubois, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not rooting for what would technically be, you know, the allies, so ourselves, Canada, America, Russia, France. I'm not rooting for him to get her. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no flag waving involved. They could, they could completely swap around the countries altogether and still have it make sense and have it have nothing to do with the war itself. Do you think that helps sell the movie, though, as a situation where it's unwinnable? Like, this isn't in the world of espionage that she's operating in and that these other people are also, you know, working in. It's just no win. It's all kind of gray and they just shift back and forth. But there's no heroes. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to play it. And you just look at when Andriani, who is her German spy handler, uh, gets her fellow spy killed because she fails to want to do the mission anymore she wants to leave this vocation and then just gets Mm. her killed just just like that i thought that scene was like really shocking where they send out this hit on this other female agent called carlotta uh, played by karen morley and honestly i think it would have strengthened the movie to give us more carlotta um because she only gets like one scene or something like that beforehand Mm -hmm. and then you know she's fallen in love and we cut to they bring out this goon who you never really see. He's got, I don't know, is that a club foot, Scott? Is that what you would call that? I think so. I think that's what they were trying to get at. Yeah. And all you really see is this foot with and like a, a larger shoe on one foot. And the sound of him tracking after her. And then she's murdered. And you actually see them carrying her body out, which I also don't think is something you would have seen in a movie post-1934. Well, yeah, exactly. Like her lifeless body being carried through the corridor in front of everyone, basically. Yeah, it's quite a sobering sight for her. And she's already, uh, uh, by her, I should say, Matahari at this point, is already having a conflict of interest. And she's wondering what she's going to do. 
But you're right. It's a shame we didn't get a little bit more of Carlotta's wish to leave and her her worries about leaving. It was more just she chose to leave at one point and then they got her killed. Yeah, because I mean, this character comes across as very sympathetic in like one scene, two scenes. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, she's obviously there as more of a cautionary tale, um, you know, for Matahari to see in front of her. But it would have been nice to have a scene maybe with Matahari and Carlotta. Um, I know that back in those days, they weren't necessarily determined to have two women talking to one another in a movie, but it would have been nice. No, but you are right. It would have been nice to have them exchange their sort of thoughts on their job. Yeah, because this movie's heavily, heavily fictionalized. So why not have a relationship between her and Carlotta in some way? Mm. But let's um, let's let's talk about Matahari as it's her film. Mm -hmm. Greta Garbo, obviously, as you said before, it's a, a vehicle for her. It's her film. She has a great supporting cast, but I think like you got to think this film takes a good 10 minutes, maybe a bit less before you actually get to see her. So you have the firing squad at the beginning where Dubois is talking to the, the guy on the firing line, trying to get some information about her. Like she's, as you said, France's greatest enemy and they're building her up. And they're like, she bewitches them. <laughs> yeah. It's, again, so you're building her up, and then you've got this scene where this pilot comes landing in. So you're introduced to this, the the primary love interest before you actually get the main character. Mm -hmm. And he's he's sort of you know he's flown from Moscow to Paris, which is a, in those days a big old flight for those little biplanes, especially during World War One. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then you have a scene with him and General Shubin. So you've got the third character introduced. Yeah, before you've met Matahari, and even they're talking about her, how she's so seductive, and he, he like it's one of my favorite scenes of the film where Lieutenant Rosanov, who's just landed the plane, he's saying how he's so tired, he wants to go back to his room and just sleep a bit, and then the general goes, "Oh well, I'm I'm off to see Matahari." Well, <laughs> <laughs> Alexei soon wakes up. He's a uh, he's spry and chipper all of a sudden. Um, I think he mentions he mentions that he's met her before at some point in the film. I I think that's implied. Is that right? Um, yeah, seen her before, maybe. I think that was it. Yeah, he'd seen her. Yeah. So he's like instantly invigorated by the idea of going to see Matahari. So then you, you've got all this build up to this this scene. They're in. She's coming out on stage. That finally, your main character appears on stage, and she is doing this different dance she's got a band of people playing live music and she's dancing all seductively on stage in front of a statue of shiva i think yeah it was shiva yeah who's the uh one of the hindu gods yeah a very exotic dance for what i i guess for you know 1915 paris france and you just think wow that's a lot of build-up for a character but they introduce her through that dance number. And it reminded me actually of a movie from only like a year or so ago, uh, the movie Hustlers, where they build up J-Lo's entrance in that movie. And it's all introduced in this like huge choreographed dance number that the whole audience is like, oh, wow, who's this character? And it feels like they're going for the same thing here. And this number is, it's not as um, maybe choreographed as wonderfully as I would have liked. I think like, some of the great Hollywood choreographers could have done wonders with this sort of entrance, but it's effective because the imagery is, um, it has that sort of 1930s exotica mm -hmm. kind of look going for it. And I mean, Greta Garbo knows how to strike a pose. 
She does. I, but that's what I was kind of building too. Is they spent ten minutes trying to introduce this main character and give her all this sort of build up and suspense, but that that dance didn't really do anything for me at all. Really? I mean, I think it's something that you know you have to look at it through the lens of nineteen thirty one. I think audiences would have been quite maybe impressed with this sequence. I know that there was trims done to this sequence because they felt it was too sexy. And so, uh, you know, they felt that, you know, this dance was kind of risque. I mean, I I was a bit confused about the, the hat she was wearing that had several, like, plates on top of it. But <laughs> I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> I wondered what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we both came in cosplay and you're wearing your old-timey nun hat. <laughs> I was just hoping you would throw me on that bed sort of thing. Yeah, right. I'm like, blow out the candle, Scott. Blow out the candle. (laughs) (laughs) That explains why you texted me that the other day. That makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, But after that point, I think they do a really good job with Matahari. I think Greta does a great job of bringing that character to life on screen. Well, I love how the movie has a lot of fun with playing her as this sort of ice-in-her-veins agent who's just playing men for fools. But also you know, allowing us to see more of the human side of this character and her wants and desires once she does find love and her conflict there. But I tell you, I had a lot of fun with scenes where she's like walking into that casino and these guys are just like dropping over for this woman. I would love to see you sit in my chair. <laughs> and like, there's the this woman at the, um, was it that, were they going to play Baccarat? Is yep. that what they were going to play? They were playing Baccarat, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, a woman at the table has a ring she's trying to sell, and every guy is like falling over themselves to buy Matahari this ring. And I was just like, "Wow, this is incredible!" And I just wrote in giant letters on my in my notes, "Dudes are dumb." That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. I, I, I I'm just wondering if that would work as a chat up line now. If you went up to a girl in a bar and was like, "I'd love to see you sit in that chair." I don't think that would work. <laughs> that that explains my track record with women. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you like you carry your own chair wherever you go. I try and get people to buy my ring off of me. I don't know why. It's not working. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean all of that I just found so much fun to watch. And Greta Garbo. I mean, there's a element of camp to this performance. Mm-hmm. I think it's inherent to the material, but it's also very well-controlled camp where it feels like she knows that this is kind of absurd of you know what's being portrayed on screen, but she's relishing every moment of it. Yeah, it's like it's military precision campness. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what did you think this movie had to say about <laughs> men being sort of dupes for this sort of espionage? I think there was a line, I'm not going to be able to quote it very well, but Dubois says to Shubin about old men being, uh, bringing the champagne and then the young men, I don't know, doing something. Uh, do you remember the line I mean? I I vaguely, vaguely, but I, yeah, I know kind of what you mean. Yeah, that it, it does a very good job of showing how much control she has over men. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, this character knows that. And I really appreciate how confident she always came across. We never had scenes of her looking like nervous or, you know, wary going into these missions. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I really enjoyed the character of General Shubin, played by Lionel Barrymore. Um, Drew Barrymore's, I guess, grandfather, I guess, maybe? Oh, really? Um, yeah, she was, she's from the Barrymore legacy. So, yeah. Uh, um, but um, this character wins the Oromoff Award for the, like, sweaty, nervous guy who just wants to go <laughs> do something else anywhere else. It's, it's like right in the, the scene where he gets killed towards the end. Spoilers. But he's, like, his uniform's all untied and his hair's all disheveled and he's just, like, <laughs> panicking, walking around him drinking, like, vodka and just not sure what to do with himself. Yeah, I mean, he is the ultimate dupe in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, uh, Rosanoff is also duped several times, but he does, you know, win Matahari's heart, and there is a love between the two of them. Whereas Shubin, she's just using. She is just stringing this guy along, and I love how much fun the movie has with sort of the male jealousy elements where you have Shubin finding out about Rosanoff and all the stress that's coming from that, but also from his own career and just everything going wrong around him. As well, he's being um, badgered by Dubois, the investigator, a lot, because Dubois feels like, um, you know, Matahari is a spy. And um, and um, Shubin is looking like a dupe keeping her around. And I, I just loved Shubin. Every scene he was in, I thought, John, uh, I thought uh, Lionel Barrymore just played it to the hilt of how sad and desperate could this guy be in any given scene. I literally wrote down in my Shubin column as sweaty and old. <laughs> He's probably only like 36. <laughs> That's what war does to you, I guess. It's the era, Scott. I mean, Greta Garbo, I think, was 26, and she's playing someone who was about 39 or 38 in those days. Was she? Yeah, because um, Matahari was executed at like 40 or 41 or something. Oh. And um, Greta Garbo was like 26 when she shot this. I didn't know that. But one thing, yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting because when we're talking about General Shubin and his sort of Oromov factor, I, I found it interesting that they played him as someone who knew he was giving information to a spy and he knew he was trapped in that web of lies from the start. So he was just basically giving her information to have a, a pretty woman around him. My mom has a saying, which is, there's no fool like an old fool. And this guy exemplified that. <laughs> He's absolutely an old fool. But then you've got that complete juxtaposition with Rosanov, who is, he's obviously duped as well, but he is so earnest and he isn't aware that he's been duped. He has this earnest, joyful glee about him throughout the film. Apart from when he's sort of blown off midway through. But you, you kind of forgive him really, because he actually has the best of intentions the entire time. He does, yeah. And there's a sincerity to him, too. Like, with um, with Shubin, it, a lot of the desperation feels like him just wanting to basically clamp down Matahari, because she's obviously, you know, a woman who has kind of a wild lifestyle that makes him obviously uncomfortable. Um, it feels, though, like he just kind of wants to possess her, Whereas it feels like with Rosanoff, he really loves her and he wants to love her for who she is, or at least um, who she is projecting onto him that she is. So I agree with Rosanoff, but I actually got the impression with Shubin that it was more of a case of that he was aware that he was in so deep with the, the conspiracy that he had to just sort of keep her under his thumb, keep your enemies close sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I think you are right there. I, there's definitely that element of this guy is in trouble and knows it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I do have a question for you, though. At a certain point, Matahari has stolen the communications 
from uh, Rosanoff. And then she shows um, the photographs to Shubin. Why do you think she did that? I'm just trying to think. So that's the scene later on in the film, right before he's killed. That's that's right. Correct. Yeah. Yes, I know why. I think I know why anyway. Okay. Because admittedly, I had a little bit of trouble following this film a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I did have to connect a couple of dots. So she turns up and he accuses her of having seen uh, Rosenoff the night before because he's told by Dubois. Right. She's so confident in the fact that she has him under her thumb that she's willing to wave that information in his face because she doesn't think he's going to do anything about it for fear of losing his own career. Mm, right. But then he actually calls her bluff and calls Dubois and then eventually the embassy as well, which results in his demise. Right. Yeah, that does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. And also just from the point of view of her character, who's someone who feels like she has control over every circumstance, mm. running into a situation where she doesn't. Yeah, she's so used to having men under control. You think at least two times in this film, I think it's Shubin and Rosanov that both lean directly into her face to try and kiss her. Mm-hmm. And she just like, nope, just stops him with just a finger. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually the scene where she's with Rosanov. And she's like, well, I'm done. Good night. And she like closes the drapes, but like kind of leaves them open. And I'm like, oh, that's, (laughs) oh, wow. (laughs) What a tease. Yeah, totally. Like she knows that she's playing this guy like crazy. Did she know about him by that point? Or was she just flirting with a guy to get out of the casino at the time? That scene with the curtains is actually before she connects the dots that he's the pilot. She knows there's a pilot, but she doesn't know who it is. So she's just going with him to get away from Andriana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would too. Of course. Of course. <laughs> he's got a guy with a club foot in his cupboard for some reason. <laughs> That's terrifying. Um, and there's also that scene earlier where he has the guy assassinate himself for, I guess, poo-pooing the tank plans or something like that. Is that what he was implying? Yeah. When he hands him the gun in the in the newspaper or whatever, in the you know stack of paper. I yeah. couldn't figure that. I, I assumed he wanted to do something with the gun, but I was like... That, that's such a weird way of saying, yo, kill yourself. I got the impression because he said, basically, you failed, clean it up, and hands him the gun, and the guy walks out. I'm pretty sure that guy was going to commit suicide. I mean, that's dedication to the cause. That really is. <laughs> I was curious, though. You know, I referenced it earlier. What did you think of the scene with the, the big seduction scene with Matahari and Rosanoff, where, you know, it's this bedroom scene? And he has this candle, this sacred candle on that his mother had given him that she said, never blow out the candle. And um, Matahari, in this like battle of wills, is trying to persuade him to blow out the candle. I thought this scene was maybe the best scene in the movie. Yeah, it, it is by and far the best scene in the film, except for maybe the scene to, right towards the end. But it, it just feels like an absolute, you know, big energy move to try and get him to blow out that candle just to show that she has that power. Yeah, like this entire thing is just a display of power and it kind of goes back to my dudes are dumb (laughs) note, Mm -hmm. but like she wins this battle pretty handily. Like this guy's willing to throw everything away for her in this moment. Yeah, he's bought in by that point. He he wants some, uh, some Matahari. And I do love that that scene, you know, the next morning she's just leaving a note being like, I'm not the kind of woman you think I am. Here's the ring. See you later. And I mean, we don't get a lot of that character's reaction. That We do get a reaction where he reads a note and is angry. But like, 
that must fundamentally break him. <laughs> like this woman had him like blow out this sacred candle and, you know, and then she just like dumps him the next morning. Like, ouch, big ouch. Yeah, that is a bit of a big ouch. I just feel like she is enjoying her job a little bit by that point. Mm-hmm. She feels like she's gotten away with it and she's just enjoying it. Yeah, and I think that comes through in Greta Garbo's performance. Um, I, I found the movie, though, I'm curious how you feel. I didn't think it worked quite as well when we got into the star-crossed love affair near the end of the movie, where, you know, she's captured and being, you know, detained for execution. Mm. And we have this, you know, the pilot, Rosanoff, has been in an accident and has been blinded. We have her, you know, going to the hospital, the war hospital, and seeing him. And I felt like at this point, sort of the romantic melodrama overtook what was a more interesting movie. I would agree that I find the spy stuff more interesting, but that might be because I am a co-host of a spy podcast. I'm not sure if you're aware. Mm, mm. Good point. Good point. Yeah. But I actually was quite engaged with the, the love story by that point. I found, I, I found it to be, I don't know. I really brought into the character that Greta had portrayed on the screen of, of what she, what they thought Matahari is. Yeah, I, I love mm. that she was really compassionate when she speaks to the, the chap in the hospital who I, I assume was blind. Right. And, and gives him the flowers. And I mean, she's obviously fallen in love very quickly with uh, Alexei Rosanov, which I... Well, that's what happened in those days. Well, they, they're, they're often blowing out their candles for each other. <laughs> is that a euphemism? <laughs> I mean, it could be. <laughs> Would you blow out your candle for me, Cam? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> but I did like that scene as well at the hospital where, again, we're getting to see the human shadings to this character. So I, I did appreciate that. It's just like, it kind of falls into that coincidence mode where there's a level of artifice to this romance that I just it kept kind of pulling me out. Like I could buy all of the espionage stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it's some of it's a little campy for sure, intentionally. So, um, but I felt like when we get to this romance, it feels a little more by the numbers. Um, you know, it's all falling timing wise, just perfectly that this guy is blinded and then she's imprisoned and he can come visit her, but he's blind. So he doesn't know where he is. And I'm just like, okay, like, I don't really buy this. And I know that in real life, she did have a romance with a pilot that she fell very much in love with. It did not line up with this sort of thing. And she did not steal, you know, communications from that dude. Do you have a heart, Cam? I I think I do. But I think there's just like a level of kind of the, the groaning of straining all the elements into place that it feels a little too convenient where it it just doesn't have sort of the it feels like the movie is determined to tell a story in a very specific way versus letting the story kind of unfold i i get that i i just think i wasn't expecting much out of this film maybe i'm showing my hand there but what I got out of it was a, a somewhat of an interesting love story and somewhat of an interesting spy story. Now, I agree, neither of them are particularly strong because the film almost breaks down into two halves. Right. But I, I just really like seeing that human side of her. I, I know you said there was, it, it felt very fake, but I quite liked the whole, oh, he's, he's blind, so let's, let's sneak him into the sanatorium so he can see her. And, oh, he's pretending, she's pretending that she's having surgery which is a way of saving face to him. 
Mm-hmm. I really liked that. I thought it was a very human thing to do. To the movie's credit, I did love the final shot of her walking down the stairs mm-hmm. and having that sort of self-satisfied smile to herself as she walks out to be executed. I thought that was a really perfect ending. Yeah, she kisses the ring that he got her and that was nice. I did. I, I don't want to ruin a nice moment talking about this between us, but that's literally a few seconds before when she comes down the stairs. Um, she then joins the rank and file of the soldiers. I had a stormtrooper moment from Star Wars A New Hope. Oh, okay. Do you remember when the stormtroopers uh, come running in at the beginning of the film and one bangs his head? Yep. If you look, the bayonets of the soldiers all kind of whack the ceiling as they're going along. <laughs> I didn't notice that. I'll check that out. <laughs> I, 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 I watched it. I was like, no. Oh, no, there it is. They're all just hitting it. Okay, great. Yeah. And one guy kind of loses his balance a little bit. It was great. So this is a really emotional scene. I'm just sat there laughing at them. <laughs> you know what, though? Matahari, even in real life, when she was executed, she didn't take it that seriously. Like, she was blowing kisses to the soldiers, basically mocking them. So, like, she went out like a badass. She did. She did go out like a badass. And I think that's to the film's credit that they give her all of this power. Because, mm-hmm. again, I'll, I'll go back to the whole, you know, she's a German spy. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, we just got over a, a world war against Germany and their allies. Right. I just think it was very good of them to to, to do that. I, maybe that's what they were doing at the time. But I was just surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like they were pretty cool with Germany for a little bit. <laughs> um, I think this was close to that era. I mean, obviously the rise of the Nazi party in the thirties definitely changed things. I, I don't know that those shades would have been as apparent though in 1931. I don't think so. So like, I, I don't know that that like jumped out as much to me. Um, but what I, I did enjoy just like the style of this movie and that, you know, I wasn't sure how much of the espionage stuff would really play because a lot of movies that are espionage films from the 30s and 40s, they they tend to kind of play it very, you know, it's just the basics. It's like, mm-hmm. I have microfiche, we have to find the microfiche or something like that. Um, I did appreciate that this movie gave us a look at a World War One era secret agent and didn't skimp on the espionage. You know, I loved sequences where she's like seducing Rosanoff so her accomplice can sneak in and steal the communications. Like it felt like, there was actual tactics I was seeing Mm -hmm. portrayed versus just your basic kind of like pass the information. Perfect. Or just use it all as MacGuffins where none of it really means anything. Um, I mean, I guess the communications don't mean a lot to us, but it at least felt like the spy craft itself was being dealt with in a way that the characters took very seriously and had some layers to it. And it was quite smartly shot, I would say, especially that scene you're talking about where the guy jumps in through the, the, the skylight or whatever you would call it uh, and sneaks into the mm-hmm. apartment. And even the phone rings and he quickly like grabs it off the receiver. Yeah, that was great. To stop from waking them up. I thought I, I was genuinely surprised by all these sort of bits that they put into a film. I didn't think films of this era were doing that sort of thing. Were that smart? And it's probably a bad thing to say, but I don't have any experience of this era, so I thought it was all just kind of romance and long shots and things like that. Right. Uh, you should watch the Marx Brothers from this era. They were just running rampant. Their comedies are faster paced and smarter than a lot of the stuff we make now. So, like the '30s, there's some really, really great stuff going on, and we will tackle 
a number of movies in the future. So uh, I think you'll find that actually the 30s aren't as creaky as you think. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely examples of those movies that, you know, the ones you would think of, you know, the ones you would see spoofed on The Simpsons or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the really awkward where the guy's like singing, you know, like like really cheesy love songs. And it's really like seems like cardboard sets. Those movies do exist, but there's some really extravagant um, work being done in Hollywood in the 30s, too. Fair enough. Well, I mean, one thing I noticed during the viewing was how love is a it's not really said very often, but it's it's a threat. Yeah. And I think love itself gets both Matahari and General Shubin killed. It does. Um, but it's also in a way what frees her in the end is that she is a woman in love going to her death. And that's what she's smiling about. She's been liberated from this life of not having emotions. You know, she's able to feel an emotion and that is her freedom. You know, she has a moment where she resigns and she's like, you know, you don't resign from the spy world. I think everyone knows that, but she, you know, yells like I'm Matahari. So she's seeking her own independence, which she gets. But then at the end, she's found love and she's not kind of operating in this morally gray limbo where you aren't attached to anything or anyone. No, you're right. And and I, I can't remember the exact line again, but another quote I think that's quite good from this film is when Andriana says to his assistant, is it the only way you retire from this, this line of work is through death or murder or something like that? Mm-hmm. And it's true. Like a lot of these, even spy films now use this sort of trope of you can't retire from the spy world. Um, I just I just thought it was really ahead of its time for what I imagined they were doing. But as you say, there was lots of good films in this era. What I also find interesting too about this movie is looking at it from the point of view of a Greta Garbo star vehicle because she was such a massive star. And there is a certain amount of mystique around her too, like the character, because... You know, her other really well-known movie, which I haven't seen, is called Nanachka. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, I believe, nominated for an Oscar for that one. She was nominated a few times. She won an honorary one later on. But she was an actress who retired at the age of 36. So just like basically 10 years after this movie and just quit acting and just went into like a civilian life and became something of a recluse. It seems like, you know, when you read about her, there was depression issues at work and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but was someone who just hated fame, didn't want anything to do with it, and just bailed out. And so there is this element of this actress who was on top of the world just suddenly walking away. And, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily uncommon in those days because a lot of actresses, you know, could chart their filmographies. Suddenly they stop working around the point they get married or have children. That just was the case in, you know, actresses in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, But, like, with her... There is this mystique because she never had kids or anything. She never got married, but just vanished. And they would find her, you know, living on the streets of New York. Just she would have her errands, but she was someone who just completely shunned the spotlight. And so it's interesting, you know, we have Matahari here kind of wanting to shun the spotlight as a spy featuring an actress who would, you know, a short, basically a decade later, shun the spotlight and want to disappear as well. It's actually really bizarre because I find this to be a really good actress in this film. Uh, I, you would think if she was transported into 2020, she would be all over Hollywood now. Yeah, it's a real case of just someone who was out, was just like, I don't want this. I mean, I don't know that we have an example. I guess I don't I don't know what you would even say would be a, an example of something like this happening now because Greta Garbo was an acclaimed actress mm. and a movie star, whereas I feel like we have lots of movie stars who don't necessarily have the range 
that um, Greta Garbo had. But, um, you know, like, just imagine, for example, like, Julia Roberts explodes in 1990 with Pretty Woman and then just bails on Hollywood, like, nine years later or something and is never really seen or heard from again in any sort of, you know, movie or TV. It would be very bizarre. Yeah, that definitely would be a strange one. I, 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 I'm struggling to think of anyone. There have been actors and actresses that have sort of just left Hollywood over the years. I'm thinking of um, Guy from Ghostbusters and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, Rick Moranis. Yeah, good example. Yeah, yeah uh, he left, but that was for family reasons. And he's coming back now mm-hmm. anyway, allegedly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does seem to be a strange one. And as I say, I think she did, did really well with this film. Yeah, I enjoyed her a lot in this movie. I mean, she is this movie. I don't, Marlena Dietrich maybe could have pulled off this role. She's really great too. And I look forward to you seeing one of uh, her espionage films. But um, I think this is like just a pretty much a perfect star vehicle for Greta Garbo. I agree. Um, One other thing I want to touch on, Scott, is like, it's interesting to watch this movie, which is made in 31, and reflect on the fact that this movie is made basically like 12 years after World War One which is so crazy to think about. I mean, you think about 9-11 uh, now, right? Mm-hmm. We're making movies that touch on 9-11 now. We're now like almost 20 years past 9-11. You think about the fact that this is a World War One espionage movie made just 12 years after World War One. It's just crazy to think about. I'm just trying to say, time is the fire in which we burn. <laughs> it certainly is. But I, and I did sort of allude to that thought earlier as well when I was surprised that they were mentioning you know, Germany and things like that. Um, yeah. I, I just, it is interesting that they really went onto these hot button topics. You'd think it'd be easy just to sort of keep it fluffy and not really get into political situations. I suppose the spy world just sort of requires that level of, uh, reality. I was curious in the, um, war hospital scene, how many of them were world war one veterans. I would suspect quite a few. There was one chap walking down the stairs with the, uh, who was an amputee. Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine that was, although he did look quite old, so maybe he was a uh, from a previous war, a veteran of a previous war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. All in all, I was glad we covered this one. I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I, I haven't said as much about it, but I think I really enjoyed watching this film altogether. Uh, it, it was a, a, a brief 89 minutes long, which is always nice for me. I like shorter films. And No kidding. Yeah, yeah I just I enjoyed all the performances. Okay, so that leads us into, I guess, the knock list, Scott. Does it make the knock list? I am struggling with this one, actually. I think I really enjoyed the spy plot of this film. Yep. But as you sort of alluded to earlier, it wasn't really carried through to the end. It kind of turned into a little bit of a a love story. Which was a good love story, but I, I think it kind of dropped its spy elements for the love story, which I think will make it a no from me. Mm-hmm. But it's a close to yes, no. Like it's on the borderline. What about you? That's sort of where I am too. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat where as a star vehicle for Greta Garbo, it's fantastic. Um, and I think people should check it out. Um, as a movie that plays around with World War One espionage storytelling i think it's a lot of fun but is it a great film that belongs on the knock list that's something i really struggle with because like i know there's movies from the 1930s we're going to tackle coming up that i really think have a very strong argument in their favor to be on the knock list so i don't feel like this is our lone candidate from the 30s Mm -hmm. you know like we have to have one from the 30s um 
And I don't know that this movie has a legacy that really speaks for itself. You know, a lot of the movies that maybe I fought for with the knock list have a level of influence that has been very strong, or they've had an enduring legacy in some way, shape or form. I mean, this movie didn't even get any nominated for any Oscars in the thirties. So even at the time it was sort of seen as a, you know, audience pleasing entertainment, but nothing sensational. And I just think like it is, I mean, it is a very sensationalized take on the Matahari story and it's done to be a star vehicle for Greta Garbo. So like, I feel like I can't even say that it's a great biography of Matahari. So for me, it's an entertaining film. I would recommend people checking out. As I said, the version on um, Apple that you can rent is really good quality. So, you know, I watched it on my 4K TV and it looked fantastic. So I do recommend people check it out. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it's a no. Yeah, I just don't think it's quite strong enough to make the knock list. You know, we've seen good movies in the past like Men in Black, um, The Born Identity, movies we enjoyed and had good things to say about but didn't quite make the knock list. I kind of feel, you know, with, um, I I feel similarly here where it's just, it's a good movie, but it's not a great one. Yeah, I I agree. I think that's probably a good summary of it. One thing I was going to touch on as well, and you alluded to was, does it work as a good uh, biographical piece on Matahari? And from what we learned at the beginning of the show in our research, it it really isn't a very good Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Which is a shame. I think I think you could probably write something that's closer to her actual story and have it to be quite a good film. Yeah, and it would be a very different story. It would be a story of a real survivor, you know, basically having to exist in a world that, you know, is, is very brutal for her. Yeah. And I think there's something very compelling about that. And this movie has little shades of that, but it's not it's not the the sort of the, you know, kind of the tough look at what this life was actually like versus the kind of the Hollywood glamorized reality. I mean, yes, there's a grim end to Matahari here, but a lot of it feels very, you know, it's very kind of luxurious in terms of its portrayal of her as a spy. Exactly. And from what we've learned, it seems like Matahari didn't have a lot of choice in reality. If she actually even did spy on any of the countries she was accused of spying for, she was sort of thrown into these worlds. Whereas we get the impression from this film that uh, Greta Garbo's character or version of Matahari almost chose this vocation. Yeah, it's very vague on that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think it's a kind of, a, it's, it has a weakness in that area too. But yeah. it sounds like it's a, a no from me and a no from you. Yep, that's correct. So therefore, Matahari 1931 is not making the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on Matahari is complete and filed as classified. But before we talk about what's coming up, let's talk about another podcast. And this one is a good friend of the show, and that's In Bed with Nikki. Now, Nikki has a weekly podcast where she takes user-submitted stories and, and things they want to hear her talk about this is an adult podcast so it's not minivan friendly as they say but she takes all of your deepest desires as matter harry would and makes it a reality in audio form so check out in bed with nikki on all of your podcast apps she will make you want to blow out your sacred candle (laughs) okay cam what are we tackling next week yes we are going back to James Bond land, baby. We're going back to the year 1997 and tackling tomorrow 
never dies. 10-year-old Scott loved this film, and I can't wait to go back and watch it again. Me too. Uh, this was a movie that um, I was also obsessed with uh, you know, in my teenage years, so I'm very much looking forward to delving into exactly why I was so obsessed with it. And I hear through a news report we may be having a special guest. We might, we might. So that should be something too, yeah. Mm. I think it's going to be a really fun episode. A very close connection to you, potentially. Potentially. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Tomorrow Never Dies before next week. And don't forget to follow us discreetly at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck. Among the shadows. Mm-hmm.